Good morning, this is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of Love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the One who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, I want today to continue what we've done the last couple weeks, which is look at this magnificent and strange and wonderful book of Revelation. I think I said a couple weeks ago that when a novelist or a poet really wants to send the ultimate message, he'll put it in the final chapter or the final stanza summing up what he wants to say. Well, the book of Revelation is God's last word to his people. It's the last book in the Bible. And in some ways you could say, even if the whole Bible were lost and only the book of Revelation remained, in some ways you'd have the whole message. Because in this book, we have symbolically expressed the heart of the Christian thing, the heart of the Christian idea. We saw the last couple of weeks that the risen Christ is the key to history. He appears to St. John, luminous, with a great two-edged sword coming from his mouth. That means Christ is the light in which we understand things. His word is the sword which battles evil, the sword that rules history. We also saw last week that Jesus is the lamb standing as though slain, do you remember, as John looks into the throne room of heaven, he sees the scroll that stands for the meaning of history. The scroll is sealed by seven seals. Who will open it? No one comes forward in heaven or on earth to open it. And then finally comes this lamb, standing as though slain, this weak, powerless, and wounded animal, symbolizing Christ crucified is in fact the key to history. He's the one who opens the scroll. Now, what I want to continue with today, and we'll just touch on a few highlights of this wonderful book. I'd encourage you to read it. It's not that long. It would take you just a couple of sittings, probably. But read the book of Revelation. I'll just touch now on a few more uh, highlights. He opens the seals of the scroll of history. And we quickly discover that this is one tough lamb. In some ways, it's the joke of the book. Here's this wounded, weak animal. He's the Lord of history. Well, watch what happens as he acts. As he opens each of the seals, apocalyptic signs, plagues, disasters unfold. You've heard, of course, of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They emerge as each of the first four seals is opened up. And these four horsemen, well, they rain destruction and plague and disaster on the earth. When the sixth seal is opened, for example, a great earthquake shakes the ground. The sun is blackened. The sky is rolled up like a scroll. I love this detail. People beg God to kill them, and they weren't able to die. That's how horrible these visitations were, unleashed by the Lamb. But then it goes on. After the seven seals, the seven trumpets are sounded. 
Well, these are the famous trumpets of doom. You know, so much of our common Christian vocabulary, from the pearly gates to people playing harps in heaven to the heavenly Jerusalem to this, temp- this trumpet of doom, all that comes from the imagery of the book of Revelation. So the seven trumpets are sounded by angels. What happens as they sound? Plagues like the seven plagues, like the ten plagues of Egypt rain down. Burning of trees, hail, the turning of water to blood, the falling of the stars from the heavens, the poisoning of rivers and seas, and probably the most remarkable one, locusts who have the faces of human beings, long hair like women, John says, and then they're, they're arrayed in the battle armament of soldiers. They come down upon the earth and they wreak havoc. But that's not it. You got the seven seals, the seven trumpets. They are followed by the seven bowls of God's wrath. And these are now poured out on the earth. And in the same way, plagues, disasters, suffering rains down. Now, obviously all of these details are part of what makes this book so fascinating. Why artists have loved it, why poets and preachers have returned to it. What do we make of this? Frightening. It is frightening. And here we are in the last book of the Bible. Maybe we're expecting a comforting word. And we get this train of disasters. Let me just say a couple things about it. Two weeks ago I mentioned to you that we shouldn't read this book simply as a reflection on events that happened in the first century. If that's the case, why are we reading it now? More to the point, we shouldn't simply read it as a prediction of what will happen at the end of the world. If that's the case, well, maybe it's true for people in in 10,000 years, but not true for us. In some very basic way, this book has to reveal something that's permanently true, that's true for every generation of Christians from the beginning to the end of time and including our own generation. So how do we read these seals and trumpets and bowls, all this disaster. I think two things. The first Christians saw in the dying and rising of Jesus from the dead, God's judgment on a sinful world. Now, I know that word has become very unfashionable. When I was coming of age, you know, back in the 70s, we never talked about God's judgment. Somehow that was bad form or it was frightening or we've moved beyond that. Christians, you can't look at a chapter of any of the books of the Bible without coming across something like God's judgment. Now, what does it mean? It doesn't mean that God has fallen into an emotional snit, that God is angry at sin, and so he's going to let us have it. Well, that's the way we operate. The justice or judgment of God in the Bible is God's desire to set things right. His passion, if you will, to set things right. God's a God of love. That means he wants us to be fully alive. That means he doesn't approve of a world that has fallen into sin. And therefore, from beginning to end of the Bible, you hear the language of God's judgment. Is God in the business of trying to transform a fallen world into a world of grace? Yes. Yes. Do we see it reflected here poetically and symbolically in the book of Revelation? I think we do. God's 
anger raining down on the earth? Well, that's God's passion to set right a world that's predicated upon hatred and violence and injustice. Yes, God wants to destroy that world. That's his business. Now, how he does it, according to what timetable, we don't know. That's up to God. But we do know that permanently throughout the centuries, this is God's business, to change a fallen world into a world of grace. Let me look at it from just another angle. The first Christians also saw, in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that the old world is passing away. The world as we know it, when Jesus came back alive from the dead, they knew that the rules and assumptions and presumptions that we all go on, somehow they just don't work anymore. A world of disease, finitude, sickness, death, that is not the final word. That is not the ultimate world. That's not what God finally intends. What God finally intends is the resurrection and transformation of this whole world in Christ. Therefore, they began to say things. Listen to St. Paul, for example. The old world is passing away. Don't bank on it. Don't rest your life on it. You know, I've used the image before, and it's right out of the book of Revelation. This image of the earthquake. I've spoken to people in uh, San Francisco who lived through some of those really intense earthquakes. The one, I think, in 1989 was the worst. And they'll say that after the quake is over, you can go back to your house and it looks fine. Go back in the house, but then you find eventually that the foundations of it have been shaken. That house is now permanently dangerous. You've got to get out of it. You've got to build a new one. Even though it might look fine from the outside, so I think the Christians saw, the first Christians. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is like a cosmic earthquake. The world might look pretty much the same after it's over, but in fact it's fundamentally changed. The foundations have been destroyed, and so now we have to orient our minds and our hearts to a new world. The world that Christ's resurrection has opened up to us. And I think that's the purpose, that's the meaning of this destruction reigned upon the earth. The old world's ending. Get ready for the new one. Just a last image. I love this. It's from an early letter in the uh, uh, patristic period. The author said, we ought to live as resident aliens here. I think I talked about that a few weeks ago. We live here in this world, but we're like resident aliens. Our real citizenship is elsewhere. The book of Revelation, I think, is telling that story. I think I have time just for one more uh, image. Let me develop this. It's in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, right near the middle of it. One of the most famous images from the New Testament. A great portent appears in the sky. So John, the visionary, is continuing to look at these uh, visions. And he sees this portent. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She's pregnant, this woman. She's laboring to give birth. Remember? 
and then waiting to receive her child and devour it is a great dragon. So John sees this drama, this struggle, the woman about to give birth, the dragon about to devour the child. The child is born, and then at the last minute is snatched away to heaven, and the dragon is frustrated. What do we make of this? Well, Christian artists over the centuries have loved this scene. You can see it depicted all over the place, paintings and sculpture and architecture. Who's this woman laboring to give birth? Well, in one sense, she's Israel. She's the Old Testament. She's all the prophets, all the seers, all the sages, all the history of the Old Testament. Laboring to give birth to the Messiah. See how the whole Old Testament tradition gives birth to the Messiah, God's deliverer. Now, we Catholics have a very strong sense that this woman is also Mary, Mary the mother of God, who herself does symbolize the Old Testament. She sums it up in some way. She is Israel. And Mary, too, gives birth to the deliverer. Now, Christians, who is there waiting to oppose him? There's the dragon. And the book of Revelation is very clear. The dragon symbolizes Satan. Symbolizes all those powers of darkness, cosmic, earthly, and otherwise, that oppose the creative intentions of God. We have a battle on our hands. The Messiah has come, yes, through God's grace. This Messiah, the book tells us very clearly, will conquer, yes. But there is a battle going on. And Christians, you can see it throughout the New Testament. When Jesus appears on the scene, he is opposed by the demons, by the scribes, by the Pharisees, by the Roman establishment, by the Jewish religious establishment. He is opposed. So the book of Revelation is telling us, from the very beginning, in a cosmic sense, God's salvific intentions for the world are opposed as this book unfolds, and next week I'll look at some of these battles, we're going to see all kinds of struggles and battles. In some ways, it's the story of our Christian lives. Don't be afraid. We're going to win. There's the final message. But in the meantime, we do have a battle on our hands. God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you.